Salam, this is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In this episode, Ismail Patel is in conversation with Lars Eric Bernson on the far right and Muslims. Welcome to Network Reorient Podcast, a project of Critical Muslim Studies. Today I have a guest who has been studying far-right activism. He has tracked the anti-Muslim and Islamophobia turn and the expansion of far-right in the West. He is a lecturer at University of Bergen in Norway and author of a wonderful book titled Liberal Roots of Far-Right Activism. He is Lars Erik Bernsen. Lars, thank you for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's wonderful. Uh, Lars, before we get into the more technical material, yeah. maybe you can explain how, what drew you to studying far-right and in particularly the problematization of Muslims. Uh, well, uh, for me, it started back in 2009, 2010, uh, mm-hmm. with um, this um, issue of um, uh, opposition to immigration on the supposedly on the basis uh, that it threatened uh, the welfare state. So okay. my background is in sociology uh, mm-hmm. originally, and um, and uh, we had some discussions on that on that topic uh, based on the public debates that were going on at the time. And um, uh, in the Scandinavian countries and in Norway, uh, the the welfare state is a very uh, <laughs> a cherished project by many. Um, uh, so that whole angle was quite, um, at the time, um, explosive. And there were a lot of uh, studies, or not a lot of studies, but some studies coming out from the U.S. Uh, and uh, from some European countries uh, where that argument was uh, uh, being put forth and made that immigration was detrimental to the normative uh, basis of the welfare state. And so that drew me into this whole question. Uh, and I started looking at this, uh, the, who was mobilizing on, on those kind of issues in, in, in Norway. And then it dawned on me that, well, it was really uh, uh, people mobilizing against Muslim immigration in particular. Uh, and that uh, when the term immigration was used, that was sort of, sort of um, euphemism for Muslim uh, migration. At that time. Okay, that's excellent. So, you, so you, basically, you're saying that there's a weaponization of the welfare state ideology uh, yeah, to recruit to recruit individuals to, to what then you talk about far right. Uh, but you use you use far right uh, exclusively as an anti-Islamic movement. How do you use these terms? Well, the far right is a kind of an umbrella term uh, that covers. A lot of different uh, political factions and movements um, that they're united in this uh, form of um, what we call uh, nativism. And by nativism, we mean that uh, you see the state and the people as being this one cohesive unit, and that uh, foreigners, whoever they are and however they're conceptualized, that foreigners threaten this uh, unity, right? And that that leads to a lot of different uh, consequences. Um, so within the far right, you've got a different different uh, movements. Um, of course, it originated with, uh, with, the, with the fascists and with the Nazis, right? So, yeah. 
So, so you talk about nativism, uh, but would you say that that sort of brings about white privilege or white order to consider it as indigenous, or do you think it now encompasses other group except Muslims? Uh, so that's the that's the striking thing with this um, anti-Muslim turn and expansion of of, of the far right, is that um, whereas the far right with the fascists and so on used to be hostile to everybody uh, except the, the idealized white man, so to speak. Uh, now uh, the far right uh, includes and incorporates a lot of these other groups that the, that the Nazis and the fascists uh, were against. So, but uh, even I want to push you a bit more on that, Nas. Uh, do you think that it now incorporates other ethnic minorities who were previously mm -hmm. considered a danger to the welfare state such as the Afro-Caribbean, uh, even, say, a, f a Far East uh, Chinese community and so forth? Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, in the UK, for instance, um, the Sikh community, um, the, the, the Jewish community, so they seek to incorporate them. So it's not, it's not that, the, for instance, the Sikh community or the, or, or the um, Jewish minority is a it's a major presence in this uh, far right movement today, uh, but there is a certain presence, and uh, they try to incorporate their identities and make use of their claims um, uh, to mobilize against uh, Muslims and against uh, Islam in the West today. I, I think I want to come back to that point later on, but before I do that. Uh, talk about the far right is it sort of restricted to a few countries in europe or do you think it's a much wider issue it's absolutely a wider issue it's a with this um um with the anti what i describe as the anti-islamic movement um it's it's a it's a pretty global phenomenon it has its basis in uh western europe and uh north america but it's it's, it's expanded uh far beyond that now uh it's um yeah it's pretty much global and what do you think binds or a thread that connects this global far right movement as you put it or as we have defined it today yeah so it's uh a lot of different uh, uh movements around around the world that have been uh united in this uh narrative and this understanding of uh of Islam as a totalitarian ideology that they compare with, uh, for instance, uh, uh, communism or Nazism, right? And they said that, well, this is a threat to uh, Western civilization. It's a threat to um, uh, the uh, Hindu uh, civilization for the uh, Hindutva, right? And uh, so on. In, in a lot of different regions, you have these quite similar uh, narratives that have been sort of combined and merged. Okay. okay. Do, do you then now feel that the far right is a traditionally thought of as an ideology uh, is reserved to, to the so-called extremists who undermine everybody else, or is there a merger between the, far, the traditional far right uh, politically with the left-wing uh, political spectrum? Yeah, so that was one of the things that I, I investigated and that I write quite a lot about in my book uh, that I found found quite uh, 
interesting, you could say, uh, from an analytical point of view, was that, uh, and what I found was that a lot of these uh, people that uh, established uh, these um, anti-Islamic and anti-Muslim groups uh, had uh, political affiliations and backgrounds from the left and from the center-right. And they built on a lot of these ideas that have uh, been fought for by uh, progressives, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so this isn't uh, new to you, I uh, I know, but uh, yeah, I, I, at that time, it, it was quite, for me, it was uh, uh, quite striking. And if you look at the broader literature in, in the field, it was also something that a lot of people uh, tended to overlook. They only focused, zoomed in on on the the groups and the organizations that had a very clear connection to the World War II uh, fascism and uh, sort of had a, a, a blind, turned a blind eye or had it was, uh, weren't really observant of this uh, development in its uh, full scope that had occurred over the last couple of uh, decades by now. If I recall right, uh, you looked at 30 figures of far-right uh, heads uh, and you found that nearly, I think, 22 were connected previously to a left-wing movement. Um, well, I, I actually, I don't have the figures in my head, so that might be uh, correct. I, uh, it, it, was around, uh, it was around half, I would say, of, of those figureheads or the, the leaders and the intellectuals that I looked at. And then you've got the broader organization. So I looked at the, the online members and the organizational developments and so on. But for the particular, for the leaders and the ideologues, it was around um, half of the ones I looked at in the West. Now, um, that is very interesting. So how do the, the, the traditional left uh, then justify th their uh, fear, if you like, uh, of Muslims and Islam? What, what are the sort of signifiers that are employed by them to, to target Muslims? Well, um, that's uh, it's it's usually anchored in their previous uh, uh, understanding and engagement with the particular political issues, such as gender equality, uh, women's rights. So, feminism if, if uh, feminism was important for mm. that uh, figure or that organization, that was also the the gateway or the entry. And then it expanded from, from there. So you had a lot of these groups, you've had uh, an individuals as well, uh, move sort of from or be kind of traditional left in that sense, and then incorporate more and more ideas, uh, the more uh, hostile they became towards uh, Islam, um, incorporate ideas that also came from the right. So, what was it? so they've been sort of blending these um, traditional right wing and left wing ideas of course the the whole uh, notion is that islam and muslims threaten uh, civilization as such right so yeah okay so in in quest, say in case of gender equality when uh, the, the framing is that muslims obviously uh, do not respect that but then we have within the right uh, spectrum political spectrum in particular where they see it as protecting the woman rather than giving equality. So how do they overcome that idea or is it buried within their rhetoric? No, it's absolutely still present. So it depends a bit on, on uh, 
whether the, the 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 person or the group had uh, started out as uh, right wing or left wing. Uh, but what um, you can see over time is that they incorporate both kind of perspectives. So when talking about Muslim uh, Muslim men as this as uh, sexual predators, uh, as a uh, kind of animalistic threat, um, it was they talk about our women, right? Uh, protecting our women. And, um, and then at other times they flip to a more, you could say, uh, feminist perspective and talk about, talk about things, uh, about empowering women, uh, and, um, about, uh, supposed kind of, uh, uh, Muslim patriarchy, which to them embodies the kind of the ultimate, uh, patriarchy in a way, right? So it's not the, the white male patriarchy that is the big threat it's it's uh, the muslim patriarchy for them so in a way we've talked about the ide ideological compatibility or to recruit uh, people towards their cause through ideology uh, is there any other sort of issues i'm thinking here of personal network or what you mentioned external shock that also becomes a means to recruit people to to their network uh what we've seen is that um, uh, um, terror attacks have been uh, pretty important uh, um, sparks for uh, recruitment. So um, you saw that, in, of course, to a very large extent with the 9-11 with the uh, terror attacks. And then you've had uh, others that have uh, drawn people in. So it's a combination of different events. And what uh, what it seems like is that this kind of triggers an emotional reaction on the part of a lot of individuals, uh, which makes them susceptible to this ideology, you could say. And then, you, sorry. This way you sort of make your link of liberal roots, because what, what is happening, uh, I'm trying to read you now, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the amplification of events or acts carried out by a particular Muslims as transposed upon the whole Muslim community is then instrumentalized to by the far right for recruitment. Uh, yes, it's, uh, you could say that it's instrumentalized in the sense that they, they push it and, and they, I mean, it fits into their narrative, right? So every time you have some kind of event uh, like that, uh, a terror attack or something uh they can they can uh come out and say well we told you so right um and uh uh quite a few people are susceptible to that uh message uh when they're in a it seems to be uh more of a vulnerable state you could say um uh, such as uh, just after a terror attack so these have been kind of triggers um in that sense, and utilized, yes, absolutely utilized. To, okay, to play a devil's advocate here, Lars, somebody would say that, you know, liberals are always complaining that, you know, Islamophobia is the greatest challenge to Europe. So how are you making your link then that the far-right activism is rooted in uh, uh, liberal liberalism? Well, mm, you have this... Uh... Uh, split, or you can say it's a splintering of, of uh, liberalism in a sense, right? So you have uh, 
people motivated originally uh, by a lot of these liberal, and I mean liberal in a very broad sense, uh, but uh, liberal uh, ideas and liberal, liberal notions um, that then move in a in a far right direction over time. Um, so uh, it it doesn't it doesn't mean that the entirety of say the mainstream uh, right and left um, have shifted in this direction at all. Uh, uh, although of course you can see sometimes uh, the similar narrative, similar rhetoric being being employed, particularly by the by the center right in in some countries, right? Uh, but um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your uh, question. <laughs> yeah, let, let me push you a little bit more on that. It, what I want to talk about more generally now, I mean, the whole idea of popularism, uh, let, let's talk about just popular, not as in a political sense, but as in vote-winning uh, strategy. What we have here is uh, what you're trying to show, I think, is that the, while the right sort of whips up uh, a frenzy against Muslims, the left and the liberal, so-called liberal, the mainstream, then use that uh, to, to gain political leverage and, and try and get mandate, political mandate and more votes, mm. uh, which means that Muslims are being castigated as outsiders of the mainstream national society, wherever that may be, Britain or Sweden or wherever other countries. Would, would you read, how would you read that? Well, I'm not sure about that. It's, it, I mean, it's a complex dynamic. Um, I think that uh, at times you've seen that happen and with some particular parties, but you've also had the, the opposite happen where you've had, uh, in, in particular on, on the left, um, political parties mobilizing uh, uh, on the basis of a kind of inclusive uh, society, a multicultural society, and the protection of uh, the uh, Muslim minority rights. Um, so you've had both uh, things happening at yeah, once. So but do we have any sort of data or any evidence that those who try to incorporate Muslims mm. do actually have greater mandate? Is that vote winning for them? Oh, um, that's an, that's something I I don't think I can answer directly. I, I don't have the data on, on because that. The, obviously, yeah, sure. Because the general trend is uh, almost that being anti-Muslim uh, gives you a lot of coverage, mm. uh, and some it might even translate. Although we don't have the data here, something we need to work on is to translate into more votes, mm. and and that. That could be a very worrying phenomenon if that is happening, and, and it, if it could be proved. Surely, I think I think um, to a certain extent you have that development with some with some parties, right? That they're able to mobilize on on uh, anti-Muslim uh, sentiments and ideas and anti-Islamic ideas. Um, and if you look to um, say Western Europe. Uh, the people who are what you can describe as um, Islamophobic, right? Yeah. Or who hold the most kind of uh, virulent uh, ideas about Muslims that they're great, kind of that there's the secret conspiracy with uh, Muslims trying to take over uh, and so on. Um, 
that's uh, some some surveys indicate that's about the third of the population that holds some sure. of these notions. So that's a large segment. So uh, of course, appealing to that uh, can uh, be attractive. Um, <clears throat> But if you look at, for instance, for, for left-wing parties, and if you look at their electorate, um, generally, the, that's individuals uh, and people uh, who um, have, a, uh, on average, a higher education and so on, and uh, are, um, believe in this, uh, in this norm of uh, anti-prejudice, right? So even if you hold some some uh, intolerant ideas about minority groups, um, for instance, Muslims, you're not supposed to to act on them. You're supposed to curtail your own um, prejudices. Uh, and for those uh, groups in the population, uh, it's uh, anathema. It's an opposite kind of. Um, it's it's not uh, a winning strategy at all to appeal to, for instance, anti-Muslim uh, sentiments or use that kind of terminology or yeah. Sure. Okay. Let's let's go back to what we started off with: is this international link of far right? Now, is this link? I mean, in particularly if you can focus on the online expansion, is there a coordination? Um, sort of more strategic coordination, or is it just a theoretical coordination that is emerging across the globe? You've had both. So it's a combination of um, some organizations that interact strategically and try to build alliances across ba uh, national boundaries and so on. And, and that was uh, very prominent um, in the earlier phases from 2004 up until 2009-10. And they had um, kind of uh, grandiose uh, ambitions um, uh, with the whole, uh, they called themselves the counter-jihad, right? And um, uh, they had uh, bases uh, in a lot of different uh, countries and they came together and had all these uh, meetings, organizations, and they put a lot of faith in the, in the British um, organization, uh, English Defense League which they saw as the kind of uh, uh, epitomizing and the idealized uh, form of, of their uh, mobilization, of their opposition. Uh, and they thought it was particularly helpful that uh, English Defense League had a kind of a working class background, work, white working class uh, background. So they could also mobilize on, on, um, on that whole kind of story about uh, the working class, right? Yeah. rising up so uh but of course that that uh, sort of petered out uh to a large extent after a couple of years uh and um the edl and all these organizations increasingly uh drew a lot of uh, counter mobilization from various organizations from uh, muslim uh, organizations and anti-racist organizations uh and the broad um, panoply of, of left-wing organizations, but also connections to some uh, Christian uh, groups, uh, state churches. For instance, in, in, uh, in Norway, you had people from the state church uh, march against these uh, groups, right? So you had a pretty broad counter-mobilization, and in particular with the 
the terror attacks in Norway where the right-wing extremist uh, Anders uh, Breivik in 2011, uh, who, who committed his attacks based on this uh, ideology and, and the, the kind of uh, the fear that uh, Muslims were taking over and uh, destroying you know, Western civilization and, and that. Uh, you had a sort of a awakening, political awakening after that, um, that set this uh, anti-Islamic movement uh, back quite a bit, I should say. Would you say that's globally or just in Sweden? No, so that's, I mean, uh, you had this uh, realization uh, in, in a lot of Western European countries. Uh, so it's, You've also seen the same in, in, in Germany. You had uh, the group called, uh, or you have the group called uh, PEGIDA, uh, mm-hmm. which is an acronym for um, Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the West. And, <clears throat> and when they started mobilizing in, in Eastern Germany, they got a lot of attention, in, and you saw these uh, other groups pop up around uh, in Europe and elsewhere, taking the same name and trying to to mobilize on that momentum, but in return you had a very broad counter mobilization. So there's sort of a uh, a, a positive uh, counterbalance uh, in the in this equation, right? In that sense. I mean, we've also had recently, uh, uh, sorry, New Zealand, where we've had a yes. massacre there as well. I, absolutely, and um, so that's something that I also cover uh, in the in the book to a certain extent. I write about this. Uh, more recent developments is that uh, <clears throat> the the movement has uh, radicalized uh, somewhat over the over the last couple of years. So where they initially, for instance, uh, distanced themselves from terror attacks and said, "Well, we have nothing to do with Anders uh, Bjergvik and his attacks, uh, atrocities," were a democratically oriented uh, movement. Uh, now it's, uh, I mean, they still push that same ad- agenda, but the, they don't distance themselves that strongly. And they say, and they put the blame on the um, Muslims uh, or on, on what they call the cultural Marxist left, right? They say, well, for instance, I just to clarify that, what you're saying is there's a justification for Andre's uh, actions by certain groups? Uh, there wasn't that much justification uh, and or support back then for these actions. So what you see now but, is not explicitly but now there is uh, not explicitly support, but uh, more kind of these uh, uh, justification narratives. So in saying that, well, it's it's the sort of the fault of of, uh, of the left, and it's the fault of um, the, the Muslim community itself that they were instigated. Would you say then that there's an overall shift uh, in the balance of what is acceptable to be said against Muslim? And I'm here thinking about political leaders, in particular in Britain, Boris Johnson, how he's referred to Muslims in a very derogatory manner, uh, even Macron in France, that what is now acceptable to be said against Muslims uh, is much more extreme or an atrocity which would be in previously considered as racist islamophobic but now it's become more acceptable again that's a, a, it's a difficult uh, question because you have these uh, 
var uh, trends that go in sort of opposite directions. And you have sometimes uh, these, uh, what you can call mainstream or major political figures that use some of these, mobilize on some, uh, use uh, anti-Islamic uh, tropes or anti-Muslim ideas. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson, of course, is a quite a prominent uh, uh, case in the, there. Um, uh, but you've also well, had you've also had the opposite. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What I'm thinking of that if they if these leaders would say the same things about any other community, right, they would not be there today. Uh, I mean, that's the sort of, if you like litmus test. Mm. Uh, a political litmus test. Yeah, so if but you again, exchange, for instance, Muslim with Jew or uh, something... Or Sikh or any other community. Uh, yeah. Even, even Afro-Caribbean, for that matter, I don't think today you would have a prime minister in Europe uh, get away with what they're saying against Muslims. Mm. So do we see this shift? And is that shift to you a concern of how Muslims uh, will be viewed or are being viewed as part of European culture or society? Uh, well, um, I think you have, um, wh when it happens, of course, um, you could say it, it's a concern because it can, it can uh, uh, embolden uh, the far right and uh, uh, there is the, the tension and the, and the, the, kind of the, the possibility that minority rights will be er eroded and uh, Muslim minority rights. Um, but in general, it's it's a, it's I find it's a very complex uh, question to answer. Or is it uh, so? And I I am not um, fully aware of all the developments, political developments there with the with the major parties and so on. So what I focus on, of course, in my in my book is is the what occurs outside of the political party sphere primarily uh, sure. with um, these online communities and. Uh, um, activist groups and so on. Um, so I think maybe on that particular issue, uh, well, uh, maybe um, I can ask you that. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I think you'll have to invite me to a podcast yeah. then. <laughs> but, but let's let's go back to your to your work and let's look at the mobilization of the far right. Hmm. Do you think uh, in that time period you've studied from twenty uh, two thousand and eleven? I think. Uh, do you think it's uh, increasing or are they gaining more momentum and legitimacy? More, more than momentum, it's legitimacy itself, I think, is of more greater concern. Yes. So momentum, I would say no. Um, they've sort of uh, plateaued, it seems. Uh, that uh, You haven't seen any recent developments that it's become a bigger grassroots phenomenon. Uh, in contrast... In some in some sense, you could say it's actually been collapsing a little bit. Uh, in particular, when you look at the street-oriented organizations, so that has its own implications in that the the groups and the individuals that stay that do remain uh, have a tendency to become more militant. Um, but um, uh, as to the question of legitimacy, uh, again. Um, should say that it, it has um, there is a large segment of the population that is receptive. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's gained more legitimacy over the last couple of, say, three, four years. 
but um, it's it's a consistent phenomenon, so it's there and uh, uh, and it's possible to mobilize on on that by political parties, uh, right? So so it's it's become more of a settled kind of phenomenon that's present sort of uh, in in politics today, uh, in contrast to how it was. Um, say 15 years ago. So, so would you say overall the political spectrum has shifted more towards anti-Muslim and that's why you think there's no need for the far-right party? Mm. No, I wouldn't say that the, the whole spectrum has shifted in that direction. I would say that, um, uh, well, in some countries it has. So in some countries, there's a large variation between countries in that respect. In Denmark, it has shifted in that direction. So you've had also the mainstream, the, the social democrats shift in uh, some uh, a, a more uh, anti-Muslim, anti-Islamic direction in their rhetoric and so on, trying to appeal to this sort of idealized uh, white working class, right? And they think that, well, that's kind of the winning ticket is that how, how to get those voters back. Uh, but in a lot of countries you've seen, I would say, not that development uh, at all. So there's what a kind of structuring, you could say, of the political landscape. Uh, it's not very homogenous uh, in that sense across Europe right now. If we go outside Europe and thinking here of China and Myanmar, yes. uh, how, how do you see those countries, India as well? How do you see the spectrum shift there, generally, rather than far right, just politically? Well, in India, it's very prominent, of course. You with the and and the Indian uh, Hindutva uh, movement uh, is quite comparable to the to the far right in Europe, and they also have these historical connections and links. Um, so what you've seen there is uh, very, in some respects, very similar. Of course. There's uh, unique historical patterns and developments there, uh, but but um, uh, with uh, with China, it's something of a different equation. Of course, there are some some kind of uh, parallels, and you've had, of course, with the the far right in in um, Europe and the U.S. sort of almost cheering on the the uh, internment of uh, of the muslim minority in uh, uh, let's see if i can pronounce y the name of the region yuga yes and the chiang yang is that how you pronounce it yeah, yeah. Yes. Re region yeah the yes. yuga muslims yes uh, right uh, but with the chinese state and the and the communist party i mean the, the whole kind of motivation and the reasoning behind it um, is more opaque and it's not necessarily motivated by the same logic at all, but the outcome, of course, is, uh, uh, well. It's the same for Muslims. Yeah. Uh, the, the same, well, it's, it, it, of course, in that context, it's more, much more extreme. Uh, uh, there you've got state-sanctioned uh, uh, violence uh, against uh millions of uh, of uh, muslims directly uh, i mean it's a, it's on a massive scale like maybe you've done a, on an episode on on, on that uh, um, but um, it's a it's truly on a massive scale and quite um, quite beyond so it's sort of like the wet dream of uh, some of the far right today in in europe right to do this sure. what is happening uh, in china 
Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, we've, we've t- taken a quite a grand tour within half an hour from looking yeah. at sort of specific far right to, to its link to liberalism. We'd also mentioned about nativism. Uh, just as a final question and some thoughts, maybe, how do you see uh, this anti-Muslim, not necessarily now simply as far right concept, but as a generic political idea uh, in, in Europe, in particularly, I'm cons- I want to concentrate on, uh, how do you see Muslims being used uh, rather than becoming part of a European uh, political structure? Well, um, I think that you'll continue to see some of the same uh, rhetoric uh, as you've seen um, in preceding years. Of course, it's difficult to tell kind of the political developments, what's going to happen. We had so many other political uh, shocks and events that uh, shape uh, developments. But, but um, uh, what we can see is that um, the sort of the motivation for kind of or the, the, the starting point for, for uh, anti-Muslim and anti-Islamic sentiments vary quite substantially across the West uh, and in, in Europe. Um, so in, for some, it's, it's rooted in this kind of explicitly kind of ethnic uh, worldview, right? Uh, whereas for others, it's precisely in this, this supposed uh, challenge that um, uh, Islam poses and, and, and uh, by consequence, the Muslim minority poses uh, to um, liberal society. Um, and I think precisely based on that, the, the sort of the, the, the outfall or the, the consequences can be quite different depending on the country. So uh, if you look to the Scandinavian countries or uh, quite a lot of the Western European countries, uh, it doesn't seem possible that the developments will go in a, a extremely uh, uh, authoritarian uh, direction against Muslims uh, within a, uh, a short time span or anything like that. Um, if you look at the attitudes in the population, by some by some measures, uh, people are getting more positive towards Muslims, um, right? But in Eastern and Central Europe, you have uh, quite a hardening of uh, these anti-Muslim. Uh, sentiments, which of course you could say is uh, somewhat paradoxical because the Muslim minority in most of these countries is, is much, much um, smaller. Um, so you could say that it's quite clearly based on uh, these sort of notions that are out there and being pushed, kind of political uh, messages, uh, not by people uh, knowing uh, Muslims and making up their own mind in any way, in that sense. So, um, yeah, so with this sort of expansion that you had uh, during 2015 with the so-called refugee crisis of the whole anti-Islamic movement and those ideas to to Central Europe and being picked up, because there you can say really that uh, the political leaders and figureheads have really picked up on this uh, and used this uh, ideology uh, to a very large extent. Okay, so I suppose one message that I'm getting through from you is that while there is a movement against Muslims in Europe, there is also always a potential to counter that. And I suppose the counter movement 
those who wish to see Muslims being part of Europe also need to weigh in with their counter discourse. Uh, yes, I think that's a very clear development that you've seen is that you've had a very strong counter mobilization against this. Uh, um, so uh, even though it's become, in a sense, it's become more mainstream that it's become a part of the public debate and the, the discourse, uh, they've uh, faced uh, a lot of opposition. And you can see with uh, when it comes to attitudes among, amongst uh, regular citizens um, that um, it doesn't seem like they're winning over a, a lot of new people. Uh, some, uh, but maybe the opposite is happening. Uh, that more and more people are in in Western Europe are becoming more positive towards uh, uh, Muslims, but that doesn't mean that. I mean, there's a very large uh, minority of the ma majority that are quite hostile. So, okay, okay Lars Eric, thank you very yeah. much for your time and your thoughts and your works. Uh, it's been wonderful discussing uh, with you. Hopefully, we shall join you again when you write your next book. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Nas. All right. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating. 